Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, rediscover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. Hello and in this episode we will be looking at the book The Romance of the Shop. A Shop. A Shop. (laughs) Got the title wrong to start with. Um, By Amy Levy which was written in 1888, getting on for the latter part of the Victorian period. Yes, and I really enjoyed this one. I thought the writing was really engaging and vibrant, and I'm really happy that we're going to be talking about this. Absolutely. Just a couple of points to make before we get cracking is we will be talking about suicide at some point, so if that is a trigger issue for you, please be aware of that. And we will also put some information about where to get help on any issues to do with that on the episode page. On a less serious note, but still a warning, there will be spoilers. We will be talking about the plot, so we will keep nothing secret, nothing for you to find out, I'm afraid. Of course, you will still want to read the book because it was very enjoyable, but we're not holding back. So on that note... Yeah, so let's just give a summary of the plot so that we can start talking about it. So The Romance of a Shop is set in the late Victorian era and it's about four sisters. They have fallen on hard times. They're from a middle-class family and their fortune has disappeared for reasons that aren't entirely clear and also their father has died. So they are facing losing their home because that has to be sold and they need to find some way of making a living. So what they decide to do is to make their hobby into a profession and they set up as professional photographers. Quite an unusual thing for women to do, there certainly were women photographers at that time, but it's a bit of a challenge for them, isn't it? They do have to battle against people's opinions in order to do what they want. Yes, because of course, as with any system where women were traditionally at home or middle class and upper class women were traditionally at home, there's a resistance against change or anything new. Mm. So there, while there were other female photographers, there, were, there wasn't a plethora of female no, photographers. No, I mean, most people probably will have heard of Julia Margaret Cameron, who's perhaps the best known of the Victorian female photographers. But generally, it was a male-dominated opportunity. So these girls took the opportunity to work as photographers because they'd had this as a hobby and they had a studio, they had all the equipment, so they had the experience and the know-how, which gave them this opportunity to start a business. Their class is important in that sense, isn't it? Because they had had in the past the money to buy all the photography equipment um, and the leisure time to learn how to do it. So this is not something that anybody could just 
suddenly decide to leap into and set up a business. They did have to have those resources in order to make it possible. That's right. So they have to do that because they only have 500 a year on which to live. (laughs) And there's four sisters. One of the sisters, Frances, or known as Fanny, she has another income from um, her mother. She's she's a half-sister. But that's only £50 a year. So they definitely have to do something to earn a living. And while they go through different options, such as being governess and Mm -hmm. so on, Gertrude, one of the most practical and intelligent sisters, Mm -hmm. sets her mind on this photography Mm -hmm. business. Um, Yeah, and most of it is from Gertrude's point of view. She is the main character, really. Yes, she is. And when the girls go about setting up a photography business yeah they do have the challenges there's a sort of a boom at the beginning because of the novelty of having female photographers and then there's a bit of a lull in business they're not sure whether it's going to survive another year but they do manage to make a go of it and they start to get involved in the art world they meet artists they go and take pictures that the artists are going to use in their work and they meet a new social set Yes, which is a good job because their old social set, a lot of them ignore them and drop them because they're not really doing what is approved of girls Mm. of their class. But they couldn't pretend any longer to be upper class girls because they didn't have the resources to carry on like that. So we're kind of with them, aren't we, in Mm. this book? We're, We're behind them here. It's called The Romance of a Shop. And this story is a romance, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, it's sort of in the modern sense of the term. I know you can say that a romance is what people used to call a novel, but there is yeah. also romantic relationships. Yes, there are. For which, sadly and wrongly, I feel, sometimes the book has been criticised because it takes the view that the women should be feminist and work mm. for their own living and you know stay independent. But they're working within a system of patriarchy which doesn't really support that Mm. and anyway they like the idea of getting married yeah even from the outset Gertrude thinks that when the business does well they're going to have tea parties in their studio and that they will ultimately marry dukes yeah (laughs) (laughs) and she kind of says that's a bit of a joke at the beginning but yeah she does um, but she's fantasizing about how it would what the most wonderful thing would be would be that if they became accepted and became the trend and fashionable and Mm. well liked yeah yes Okay, so let's think a bit more about Amy. So Amy Levy was a British Jewish writer who was born in 1861. And she is... I suppose not that well remembered today, but if remembered at all, she is associated with her other novel, Reuben Sachs, which was published in 1888. And that was generally regarded as the sort of the superior novel, wasn't it? But... Mm. um, Although not everybody approved, because I think some people felt that it portrayed the Jewish community badly. Mm. So that was something that she had to contend with, being accused of anti-Semitism and yet also experiencing it in her own life. Yes. So she was a very uh, intelligent woman. She was educated at Brighton High School, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And then went to Newnham, Colum- Co- Newnham <laughs> College, Cambridge, where she stayed for two years. She was one of the first female students but she wasn't eligible to receive a degree. She could go and study but she wasn't actually eligible to have the degree because of being a woman which is something I've studied a bit in the terms of medical education as well. Sometimes universities would allow women to come along and listen in but they weren't going to give you that degree at the end. Do you know when Cambridge started awarding women degrees? 1948. It's quite shocking. Yeah. 
I mean, that that's pretty recent, isn't yeah. it? So yes, girls, you can come <laughs> along and study, but you're not getting the certificate mm-hmm. because... reasons yeah because of reasons so uh, we get the impression that she suffered quite a bit at university from anti-semitism yeah and sexism combined so it was a really tough time intersection of the two and she was a young woman on her own obviously so it must have got to her i should imagine um so she left after a couple of years I had also heard that they started introducing prescribed courses in the third year oh. and they were going to make them take maths and oh, things. Oh, yeah. She and she, she kind of thought, mm. oh, no, if you're not giving me the certificate anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think at that point she'd also started writing and had some success, so she just mm. decided to pursue that. Yeah. So she'd done a first book of poetry called Xantippa and Other Verse, which was in 1881, and that went down quite well. Mm. Then we come to her writing novels, but sadly she had suffered from depression. I'm not sure whether it's before university, but certainly at university and post-university. And this is where she sadly ends her life at the age of 27. Mm. So she must have been very ill and she'd spent a couple of days on her own. Mm. So sadly there was no one there to uh, help her at that point. Mm. So... um, that that's probably why we didn't hear much of Amy Levy after that. It might have just all gone a bit quiet around her because mm. that would have been um, a difficult issue. Yeah. And we don't really know how many romantic relationships she had or she did at all, but it seems that she did like women. She became kind of infatuated, really, with a writer called Vernon Lee. Amy Levy was in love with her but unfortunately it wasn't reciprocated um, which must have been another element to how she felt about herself yes yeah so she had lots of sort of sadness and challenges Mm. like that I think I read one bit that said she believed that she was really unattractive um, that she used to sometimes sign her initials as U-G-L-Y which is really sad I mean there's a lot of photos of her that are extant and she definitely wasn't unattractive was she she was really striking looking yeah yeah, so that's that's sad that she didn't get past that stage and um, continue her career. Because we, we both really liked this book, enjoyed it very much. Her writing style particularly, Caroline. Yeah. Um, yeah, so she has this kind of very vibrant style, which is often witty. This is not a comedy, but there's quite a few funny bits in it and the way that she portrays her characters is really incisive and observant and what I particularly liked was how she portrays the city of London you really feel immersed in Victorian London to the extent that it's almost like reading a present-day historical novel where somebody has really gone into detail about the surroundings and yet it is real it's written at the time so she will mention names of streets, um, yeah. the atmosphere, the type of people walking about, the fog. Um, so you do really get a sense of what it was like to be in London at that time and travelling on an omnibus with Gertrude. Yes, ab- absolutely. And yes, she does do that whenever they go anywhere. She mentions the route that they yeah. take and which roads they're going up. So you, you know exactly where, where she's going. So that gives it a really modern feel, I think. Mm. So then they start this photography business mm-hmm. in London. We feel that we're there. 
and they get a premises and one of the first jobs that they get as a photographer happens because someone just has been sent out to go and find a photographer. It's a quite an urgent job because they have been asked to photograph a deceased lady. And this was something which was done at the time. I'm sure probably a lot of people will have heard of post-mortem photography in the Victorian era. It's something that has become quite popular on the internet with people <laughs> saying, oh, look at these post-mortem photographs, it's really creepy. So you get all these <laughs> lists um, where showing different pictures and more often than not, they're not actually post-mortem. A lot of those people were alive in the pictures. But post-mortem photography was a practice. don't really know how popular it was in Victorian England. It was probably not as popular as present-day commentators like to make out. Um, so most photographers would probably be asked to do this occasionally during their career, but it wasn't a huge trend. Um, and a lot of photographers didn't really like doing it because you'd have to lug all of your stuff to the person's house. Um, you'd then have whatever lighting was good or bad in that venue. Um, there are also considerations of things like you didn't know what the person had died of. You are at risk of contracting a disease, perhaps. Yes, which they mention in yeah. when they're going to go to do the photography, whether you're going to catch a disease from the dead body. Hmm. Um, but uh, it, this was an internet trend that I had not been aware of, Oh, Caroline. OK, yeah, <laughs> this is the kind of internet circles that I move in, obviously. Yeah, but uh, I am now, so I'm, I'll have to look up uh, some of this Victorian dead body photography. Yeah. Um, post-mortem, or, yeah. yes. Yeah, or death photography. So mostly in Britain, the trend was to photograph people to look as though they were sleeping. Um, So a lot of these pictures that you see nowadays where somebody is propped up and we're told that it's a deceased person, they're not really. But usually the photographer would be asked to take a picture of the person as if they were asleep. And it was often, a lot of the deceased would be children. Your infant mortality was high. You wouldn't necessarily have any photographs of a very young child. Um, And this was one of the few ways of keeping that likeness as a way of remembering and respecting their short life. Yeah. So it was it was a really sad thing, um, but it did help people with their grieving at this very difficult time for them. Yeah, okay. It, it was an interesting development in photography then, mm. wasn't it? Because with it being a fairly new phenomena, mm. um, seeing how people started to use it, and what it what it was going to mean to people and that's where we come back to and we'll talk about it later but photography getting accepted into the art world Mm. because it must have been a a matter of wondering where photography was going to go whether it was going to be used for science or industry yes i wonder whether some artists would think oh you just take a picture it's not proper art yes i know artists who say that now But yes, just to go back to the post-mortem photography, the reason that Gertrude goes to do this photograph is that this um, Lady Watergate has died and her husband wants to uh, preserve her image. And I suppose one thing about this type of photography was you had to do it really quickly because the body was going to deteriorate. So you wanted to get it done in the first 24 hours and I think that's possibly why the servant who comes out to find them is just getting anybody who will come and do it and that's why they get this opportunity but it's important that Gertrude meets Lord Watergate because he's going to be important later on in the plot
You're listening to She Wrote Too, the podcast that celebrates the women writers of the past. For more content, including photos, articles and links to interesting books and websites, visit us at shewrote2.substack.com. Before all the romance gets started, the girls have to get on with their business to establish themselves in the photography world. And they are quite excited about it, but they also meet some resistance from from it, particularly from Aunt Caroline, Mm. who really doesn't see that it's appropriate for girls to be doing this sort of thing. The family had offered to try and split the girls up and send two of them to India and two to go and stay with some other member of the family Mm. but they want to stay together and it's in that unit that they can have strength and kind of defy the world yeah it's a bit strength in numbers there's four of them they're all committed to doing this business so they can just tell people tough that's what they're going to do yeah i like what uh, gertrude says about business that most of women's work is dreadfully lacking she says but a business that is so different a creature capable of growth the very qualities which are normally not available Mm. to women's work so she had quite a modern view Mm. of what was possible Mm. sort of an early start of the new woman movement Mm. which we see later in the early 20th century but this is kind of an early toe dip in the water of the new woman their business I mean like any business it has its ups and downs there are times when it's quite stressful they think it's not going to survive because after the initial flurry of customers there's then a bit of a lull but they do manage to do some networking and make contacts yes particularly with their neighbour across the road which who's rather well located Mr Frank Jermin I think that's how you say his name how do you say I'd say German German I'm going to go with Caroline on that German who he's an artist and he is quite helpful and friendly to them yeah, isn't he and he's also rather hot as well yeah yeah <laughs> which gertrude's friend constance is particularly keen on him but he, oh, doesn't, yes. he doesn't really notice her does he no he's very sociable and he goes out dancing all the time and so we get to know that all the ladies like him mm. but actually he ends up with one of our ladies But not before there are lots of challenges keeping them apart. Yes, of course. Well, it's a romance. They have to be. (laughs) But a lot of the interactions between him and the sisters, there's a real sense of equality, isn't it? It's like a bunch of friends. It just happens that they're different sexes. Yes. Something that struck both of us was that although this is obviously dealing with a very patriarchal society and a structure in which men benefit from the oppression of women... The men in this book are actually pretty decent sorts, aren't they? Yeah, they they are, most of them. So although it's sort of really important not to equate men with the patriarchy, Mm. just because they are working within that system, Mm. which does benefit them, doesn't mean that they are oppressors overtly. No, they're not individually oppressors. So in this book, the men are generally really supportive of this venture that the young women are doing. So when they want to set up their business, they write to another photographer that they know called Mr Russell and ask him what he thinks about the idea and how they should go about it. And he's really keen. He he lives, um, I don't think they say where, but it's somewhere in the north of England, and he hops on a train and comes down to London to advise them on how to go about it. He offers Lucy some training, so she goes back to his studio um, to learn the workings of a photography business. And he's really keen. 
Yes. And then we've got Frank German, the artist, who um, he was very supportive of them, and he invites them along to do photographs in his studio and to meet other artists. And they're able to build up a useful social network through him. And then, of course, there is somebody we've already mentioned, who is Lord Watergate. Now, he is a higher social class than the family, but he is kind of on the fringes of the art world as well. And he invites them to social gatherings. And later on, he becomes really a steadfast presence, in particularly in Gertrude's life. He's got a very good sense of morality. And he discovers that one of his friends is dodgy. Yes. And he helps Gertrude get out of the situation. And if you think this is sounding Austin-esque, it is. This is our Mr Darcy yes. figure, really, isn't yeah. it? And, and the, then we've got the Wickham figure, yes. who is called Sidney Darrell. Yes. Um, and he's a, an artist, he's a charming chap who everybody except Gertrude likes. She thinks there's something a little bit creepy about him, but she can't really identify exactly what it is. But she does trust her instincts and feel that she needs to keep her distance from him. And somebody we haven't mentioned yet is young Phyllis, who is the youngest of the sisters. She's only 17 and she's not really involved in the photography business. She is considered to be quite delicate and not really up to doing any work. So at the beginning of the novel, she's swanning about having fun in London. But we do find out quite early on that things are not going to turn out well for Phyllis because she has got that typical Victorian code of having the bright eyes and the flushed cheeks which signify tuberculosis so any fans of Victorian literature will probably immediately recognise that um, and know that it doesn't bode well Phyllis is not going to be long for this world yeah the girls actually are described as Gertrude the cleverest Phyllis the prettiest Lucy far and away the nicest of the Lorimer girls Mm. But Phyllis is the one who falls into the clutches of this Mr Darrell, the artist. And he is giving her attention. She initially laps it up. She wants to be uh, this popular person in society. But things get a bit far and eventually she decides to run away with him or she is persuaded by him to run away. And they're going to go to Italy. Fortunately, it happens to be a really snowy evening and they have to stay at his house before they can make their journey. And that gives enough time for Gertrude and Lord Watergate to go and rescue her. Yes. So this is where Lord Watergate again does the Darcy type thing of helping save her, her younger sister. Phyllis isn't treated in the same as a silly um, no, not girl, not like this. Lydia, no. Because we were talking earlier about the age difference between the two of them. I don't think we blame Phyllis in this these circumstances. No, she's, she's only seventeen. This guy is probably forty. Yeah. So, um, and he has kind of been grooming her because he's been inviting her to come and pose for portraits. He's suggesting some slightly risque things, which the other sisters managed to dissuade him against, and he just does pictures of her. Um, as she is but then when Gertrude and Lord Watergate turn up at the house they find Phyllis in this diaphanous see-through gown posing for Mr Darrell. So most inappropriate for a girl of 17. And they take her away and as it turns out she is very relieved to be rescued. So Lord Watergate lifts her I think so he physically takes her out of there and he says to his friend you are a scoundrel (laughs) Darrell. In very clear, deliberate tones. 
So he's really a proper hero at that yeah. point. Very manly indeed, telling off the scoundrel and, and physically rescuing the poor girl. Yeah, who is really quite ill by this time anyway. Yes. Um, and when she gets home, that's sort of the beginning of her decline and she sadly succumbs to tuberculosis. Yes, because of course she's had the stress, but she's also been out in bad weather, hasn't yeah, she? Yeah, that's Which, another trope. Yes. Um, I think to some extent Amy Levy is nodding to these tropes of fiction deliberately. So there are things where she describes the older sister Fanny as being from a different time where girls had ringlets and went into hysterics. Yes. Um, and there's a few of those where there's just a little nod to some of the stereotypes and even cliches of the literature of her time. There are, and I find that really interesting and amusing because you can enjoy them as well. And some people, the critics, have not understood that and Mm. have said, oh, she's putting together a mishmash of different books that have gone before. And I kind of think, no, it's actually an appreciation. And if you want any more evidence of her appreciating other writers and readers, you know, she begins every chapter with a quote from some other work of literature. Mm. So I... I really think she's keen to sort of express her love of reading and I other think writers. So. There's a bit where um, she directly mentions Lucy Snow, who is, of course, the main character in Charlotte Bronte's Villette. And there are a few bits like that where she will refer to literature. And there's a bit where they're waiting for Frank German to come back from Africa. He's been sent off there as an artist for newspapers. And they believe him for a while to be dead because there was a massacre of British soldiers and Frank has disappeared. But Fanny says, oh, well, in books, people always come back. And that kind of foreshadows the fact that he does eventually come back. It turns out that he's been kept prisoner somewhere and that he's released and returns to England. So that's another nod to things that happen in books. Yes, I was just looking at this. It is quite a romance, went on Phyllis. She and Mr Marsh wanted to be married ages and ages ago, but he was too poor. This is Edward Marsh, who marries Fanny. And went to Australia. Now he is well off and has come back to marry Fan, like a person in a book. A touching tale of young love, is it not? Yes, I think it's a very touching and pretty story. So there's a self-awareness, isn't there? And yeah, I I really like that style. In fact, any of the criticism that I have read, I have uh, quite vehemently disagreed with so far. (laughs) (laughs) So there's almost an element of pastiche in some of these references Mm, to literature. There is. In the end, Lord Watergate and Gertrude marry. Shortly after Phyllis's death, Gertrude is still grieving. Lord Watergate does express his intentions and she rejects him. He doesn't say outright, will you marry me? But she sort of knows where it's going and she turns away from him. And then she realises that she doesn't mean it. Yes. Up till that point, I don't know if she'd really taken it seriously that she could get married although it had always been in the back of her mind as Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier about the you know we shall all marry dukes but that was a kind of aspirational thinking of the future type idea but it it just shows that that would have been in the mind of girls at that time because Mm. that's what they did yeah there's a lovely comment by I think it's Lucy who says, it must be nice to be married or something, having your favourite man pop by yeah. every evening. <laughs> yeah, it, I thought it was Phyllis who said that. But oh, yeah, it's it like having, yeah, your favourite man. <laughs> your favourite man pops by every evening. Yeah. I was listening to that in the um, kitchen and I thought, yeah, it works if your husband is your favourite man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess is what they're hoping for. 
Okay, good. And so let's think about the role of marriage and why it ends up with everybody getting married. Some critics have found that disappointing because you've got this proto-feminist plot where they're independent businesswomen making their way in the world and then they do get married like in a typical romance. So we've got Fanny who marries Mr Marsh who's back from Australia. We've got Lucy who marries Frank German who they thought he was dead and then he turns up again and we've got Gertrude who marries Lord Watergate. So they're all nicely settled. And Lucy is the only one who carries on with photography. She manages to create a niche for herself doing photography of children. But she would have been under less pressure Mm. to do it to the level that they were previously needing to, wouldn't she? Mm. Having secured herself a bit of financial backing through being married. I think it's a mistake for people to believe that feminism means that a woman has got to be entirely independent and make Mm. her own fortune and be completely financially independent. Because why should you in a world that's not (laughs) set up like that? I mean, if you want to, that's your choice. But imagine having your favourite man popping around and and providing you with financial security. I mean, what girl would be turning that down? I don't think it goes against the feminist message at all. They were living in the Mm. times that they were and... Mm. The relationships that they form do have a very equal kind of yes. atmosphere to them. They're not getting married because they have to. They meet these men who they fall in love with and they want to spend yeah. their lives with. They do. And as we say, these men have actually always been really helpful to mm. them. They haven't been oppressors. They haven't been bullies. And the scoundrel is seen off. Phyllis sadly dies, mm. so she doesn't need a husband. No. And so the, the marriage is, is happy. And of course, it gives us all our happy ending but it is a romance and there's nothing wrong with reading romance literature it's an important genre absolutely so it's a very funny book all the way through very witty very amusing particularly thinking about the patriarchy it's not the men that uphold the patriarchy Mm. in this so much they benefit from it obviously but the major person who upholds the patriarchy is aunt caroline So she is from an older generation who has grown up within this system and is resistant to change. She's done all right with it. She's got her husband, Uncle Septimus, who just goes with the flow and just wants a quiet life and lets her get on with whatever she's doing. And she doesn't see any reason for women to go out and make their own living. So the girls really stand up to Aunt Caroline because... She really does think they're being sort of ridiculous, especially as they do have these other options of splitting up and going off to various different locations. And Gertrude stands up and says, Let me speak, Lucy. Perhaps after all, we do owe Aunt Caroline some explanation. Aunt, how shall I say it for you to understand? (laughs) See, I find that amusing. We have taken life up from a different standpoint, begun it on different bases. We are poor people and we are learning to find out the pleasures of the poor, to approach happiness from another side. We have none of the conventional social opportunities, for instance. Are we, therefore, to sacrifice all social enjoyment? You say we follow Mr Jamin to his studio. (laughs) We have our living to earn, no less than our lives to live. And in neither case can we afford to be the slaves of custom. The important bit of that, sorry, I didn't read that very well, but... She's saying that we've got to make this new life because Mm. we're not in a position to not work and to sort of hang about being middle-class ladies anymore. Mm. 
um, which we discussed earlier, that middle class was a relatively newish concept mm. and they were behaving a bit like upper class ladies. Yes. But they didn't really have the financial backing if the the mm. business that had led them to that point failed. Yeah, so at the beginning of the book, they are in their family home, which is a big house. They had lots of money. There's a butler who's there, but it's precarious. They don't have the kind of generations of inherited wealth that would have been behind upper-class people. And so when that goes and the house has to be sold, they are effectively homeless for a while. They have to go and live with various relatives until they can establish their own place. When they rent their place on Mm. Upper Baker Street. It's interesting that it is the women that try and uphold the patriarchal structure and I don't know if that's... You hear of women doing that. I I don't think it's that they've actually considered their position. It's that they've accepted convention Mm. and have never questioned it. And this is what Gertrude's trying to explain, saying that we can't be slaves Mm. of custom. They had to adapt. Of course, Gertrude's right to protest her Aunt Caroline's view that everything is wonderful in the world of women if only you follow custom as we get some examples of the suffering of women just in the background just mm. as sort of subplots and sidelines there's for example an old lady who is sweeping the streets outside mm. baker street station and she's described as an old hag a withered hag a withered hag isn't yeah. it yeah so it suggests her kind of suffering and it's a reminder that not all the women are middle and upper class and we also see suffering in one of their neighbours, mm. don't we? Yeah, so they're renting their premises from the pharmacist downstairs. And there's another lodger, Madame Stephanie, who's a French lady. And quite soon after they've moved in, they hear this huge commotion and they don't know what's happening. And as it turns out, this was somebody trying to stop this lady from killing herself by taking poison, which she has taken from the pharmacy. And... We learn that she's in great debt, she can't see a way forward, and so she has decided this is the only way out. Fortunately, in that instance, she is saved from this fate, and she is able to rationalise what's going on, work something out for her future. She moves away. We don't really find out what happens to her, but it is presented that she does see that there is a future for her, and that she is able to go on to a new life. And that is quite interesting because although that episode doesn't really have any bearing on the later plot, and I wondered whether, considering what happened to Amy Levy eventually, whether she was exploring the idea of suicide and just writing about it, trying to work through it in her mind and use this character as a kind of experimentation of the feelings that she was perhaps feeling herself. Absolutely. So it's sort of an exploration of uh, suffering and and Mm. one of the possible outcomes. But yes, I I agree with Caroline that that she doesn't seem to add an awful lot to the plot other Mm. than to be background suffering. Mm. And so it does seem that that's an issue on the author's Mm. mind that she works out in in the story. Right. So we both recommend this book it's very interesting it's very amusing actually i was thinking just before that horrible event of the suicide Mm. um there's a really funny bit where i think it's phyllis goes and throws open the window and screams Mm. murder into the street because she suddenly she suddenly really panics yeah and it's such a dramatic scene but it's written in a very amusing way even though what follows a a Mm. few minutes later is is you know pretty horrific 
Anyway, as we've said, some people don't quite appreciate this uh, novel as, yeah, as much as we do. Yeah, it's having a quick look at the Goodreads reviews, and it's only got about a 3.7 or something. And uh, we thought it'd be quite funny to just read a couple of the... Yeah. You know, with every book, you always get the naysayers. Before we read the criticisms, there is some racist language in the book, which I'm not going to repeat, but it was in use at the time and although totally shocking and unacceptable now wouldn't have been such Mm. an issue then yeah because this book is not really dealing with race they use the word as part of an idiom that they are referring to a couple of times so some readers have understandably been shocked by that it's the kind of thing where i don't usually agree with changing things for new editions and that's been in the news quite a bit recently but this is the kind of thing where it could very very easily be modified if it's being published again without losing anything at all yes yes Mm. so quite a few people have compared it to little women said that it doesn't measure up to that but somebody says was okay good characters and plot just a bit drab which i don't agree with i, I feel like the writing all. was um really vibrant yes. i've said that quite a few times i need to think <laughs> of another word you really mean it <laughs> its narrator is so didactic and humorless that it's not worth reading outside of its historical value which is the exact opposite of what we've said absolutely i think it, it just must be that some people don't appreciate her sense of humor because yeah. i found her highly humorous in in virtu- yeah. on virtually every page or maybe we just find things funny when they're not <laughs> that's possible anyway some people didn't appreciate it as as much as we did but yeah. somebody's said a third-rate imitation of austin ridiculous cliches and melodrama whereas we said there's a an appropriate nod to austin yeah there you go that we think it was intentional on the author's part it's really interesting to see what people think because everybody's right, really, and they what, how you interpret a book is very it's much down to the reader as much as the writer. Absolutely, you construct um, it in your and, own mind. And it's to some great extent. that people have all sorts of differing views about every book because that's how we can discuss it. Yay! Right. Okay. I think we'll leave that there for this time, and we'll put some interesting stuff on the page all about Amy Levy, and then we'll be moving on to something else next time. You have been listening to She Wrote Too with Nicola Morgan and Caroline Rance. To make sure you're one of the first to hear about our next episode, subscribe at shewrote2.substack.com. That's shewrote2.substack.com, where you can also find extra content and join our social media networks. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to welcome you again next time. Mm-hmm.